Hey, brother, there's an endless road to rediscover. Hey, sister, know the water's sweet, but blood is thicker. Oh, the sky. Welcome to the Reformed Brotherhood. Brothers don't shake hands. Brothers gotta hug. I'm Tony. And I'm Jesse. Brother? I'm going to have a brother? I've always dreamed about having a brother. If you'd like to join our brotherhood, you can join our Facebook group. You can email us at reformbrotherhood at gmail.com, or you can find us on Twitter at reformbrohood. You can also subscribe and rate us on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or anywhere else podcasts are found. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. Hey, brother-in-law. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. Tony, what's going on? Well, we got a lot going on. We have joining us tonight, Nate Pickowitz. Nate, how are you doing tonight? I'm doing great. How are you? Good. Now, I hope that you understand that there's nothing personal uh, about our family's use of your name. It's just business. <laughs> just it's, business. Yeah, it's just business. So if you, if you don't know what we're talking about, go back. There's an episode called The Nate Episode. I assume that this will probably have a similar name. But uh, we use the name Nate in our family to kind of make fun of people. And then we met this guy named Nate, and he's not a Nate, but he is a Nate. It's like a paradox. It is a paradox. Well, you know that Tony is like an Italian gangster name, right? It so, is, I mean, that's, yeah. That's like your thing. And Jesse, that's my wife's name, so that's kind of a girl's name. So, you know, <laughs> I'm just, just playing fair, you guys. I mean, I'm a Nate. You guys are Nates. It works out. So It's all good. So <laughs> oh, I, I didn't even see that coming. I know that well, was that, a good that one. is my wife's name. My wife's name is Jessica, so I call her Jesse all the time. So I just you can't get past that one. I mean, man, that's that's <laughs> that's, that's oh, that that was well done. See, do you go by anything other than Nate? Uh, you are allowed to call me Nathan if you'd like to. Um, but um, yeah, whatever you want. I I did listen to the Nate episode, so I I I was re- ready for both barrels. So it's all right. <laughs> <laughs> So, um, have you guys ever eaten at the restaurant, the 99? Yes. Yes. Okay. So my wife and I, and, uh, some friends of ours met for lunch yesterday and I always, anytime I eat out, I get a hamburger because I don't eat hamburgers all that often. Um, and it was ironic because I say I don't eat them all that often, but we actually had hamburgers on Friday and then I went and had a burger on Saturday. And I always ask for a side order of mayo when I get my fries. Do you guys ever ask for something extra with your meal, like mayo or like hot sauce or something like that? Sometimes, yeah. So, Sometimes, but not mayo. Yeah. Already where this is going is weird. So we have this running, sort of running joke that I actually wish was a joke, but it's not, that I always have to ask for the mayo like four or five times. So if, if a waitress or a waiter brings out the mayo on the first shot, it's like a great day. But whatever it was, this this waitress yesterday, I don't know, she must have been having an off day or maybe she was near something, but like she had to, I had to ask her like four or five times. And so there was all sorts of other stuff going on with our order. And she finally brings out this plate. And it was weird because it was on a plate and then on a plate and then in a dish. And I look at it and I was like, man, this doesn't, this doesn't look right. Something is wrong with this mayo. And Ashley leans over and she goes, I think it's butter. And, and somehow along the line, this, this waitress had grabbed a thing of butter and brought it out to me instead of my mayo. It was the craziest thing. So we were thinking that maybe somebody on the other side of the restaurant had asked for butter and got a thing of mayo, and we were trying to think of, like, the most disgusting things to put mayo on. We came up with pancakes. I'm not sure if it gets worse than that. 
Why can't you just eat a burger like the rest of the country and just have a burger with <laughs> no mayonnaise on it? Yeah, no, the, amen, the, the mayo's amen. for my fries. Oh, the, yeah. oh, the, oh, what are you from Holland? Like, yeah, that? see, that's no, no. that's the problem right there. Why are you why are you putting the the mayo on the fries? I don't know. I don't know. I didn't think that was the part of the story that was going to be surprising. <laughs> that yeah. that's actually the part that just totally grabbed me. I don't know something traumatizing happened in your childhood. Or have you sought counseling <laughs> for this problem? Maybe I'll have to I'll have to check it out. I'll, I'll go check in at the psychiatry department at the hospital and see if there's some sort of like condition that is described, like mayoosis or mayoitis or something like that. Well, here's the thing that might legitimize it. Is that a Midwest thing? Uh, I don't I don't know that it's distinctly a Midwest thing. I mean, maybe Be, because. Growing up in New Hampshire, we were just happy to get hamburgers. So yeah, that's we, right. <laughs> that's right. We, we didn't put there's no mayonnaise on the burger or the fries. But I, like Nate, do you have any kind of weird condiment? No stuff that you do. I actually I will I will refuse condiments. I don't even put like mustard on things. Like I just I'll do ketchup with fries. That's fine. I put relish on a hot dog or a burger, but I don't do insane combinations of food. I just I'm a very plain person. So. Um, no, nothing creative. I respect that, though. Is that because it's Puritan? No, I think I'm just finicky. <laughs> <laughs> which, which very well could be puritanical. I don't know. <laughs> I don't. That think is a word that gets misapplied. Yes, yes. it does. Yes. Although I'm happy that we just came up right here now with the Puritan burger, so we ought to copyright that. So, just is that there, just like a a burger on a white bun with like nothing, just totally plain? See, you guys got to read Phil Riken on this because Riken talks about how the Puritans were not these kill- killjoys. They actually put mayonnaise on fries. I mean, they did stuff <laughs> like that. that is, that's a real thing. But there's actually a restaurant in Manchester, New Hampshire called the Puritan Back Room. They have the best chicken yes. tenders on the planet. They're so good. So you got to go to the Puritan Back Room. There's even like a puritanical silhouette on the sign and everything it's very uh very new england it's excellent I should, we should check that out next time you're that's probably the best thing that's ever happened on this podcast that whole conversation the name of yeah. that place and the fact that they're known for chicken tenders they're great man you gotta if you're in new hampshire next time you gotta if you're in manchester go to puritan back room good food uh yeah it's good times we'll have to check <laughs> that I'm gonna, out i'm gonna check that out meet up. i'm here for your edification i'm here to bless you so <laughs> So, so why don't we go ahead and jump right in, Nate? Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, um, kind of what you're doing and and what is going on in your world right now? Sure. Well, I'm a Nate, so uh, that kind of speaks for itself. But um, no, I I grew up in New Hampshire, um, born and raised, and I'm a pastor of a church plant that's about four years old. And I'm interest interestingly enough, I'm I'm pastoring and planting in the town that I was raised. And uh, when I was a kid, I mean, I, I don't know, Jesse, you said you're from New Hampshire. So, you know, to find a good church, you typically have to travel quite a distance. I mean, it's very, very rare to have a good church, a good Bible-centered, doctrinally sound church in your hometown. It's just a rarity. If you have it, it's a huge blessing. But, you know, so like everybody else, we traveled. And when the Lord uh, seemed to be calling me into ministry, we were scratching our heads trying to figure out where to, where to plant. And as far as I knew, um, my hometown still needed a church, you know, a church that, that was um, explicitly gospel-centered, that was, um, I mean, there's not a lot of uh, even Reformed churches up here. I mean, even people who hold to, to the doctrines of grace at all. So, uh, but that aside, I mean, just seemed like we were being called to this area. I had friends up here, family up here that I knew weren't saved. And um, so we planted in 2013, and we've been here ever since, and got a wife named Jessica, and uh, two kids who I love dearly, and 
Um, you know, just writing, trying to sleep, living the dream, you know. <laughs> I hear you, man. We don't have kids, but we've got a we've got a West Highland Terrier that loves to wake me up at like three in the morning. Yeah, that's almost the same thing. Yeah, that's pretty close. <laughs> <laughs> so Nate, no, you, you, you have um, you have a couple sleep. books that just came out, right? Well, yeah, so I, I released a book uh, last October called Reviving New England, um, and that's so that's been out for a little bit. And then I've just started, I'm sure we'll talk about this more, but I just started a, a brand new series uh, um, called The American Puritans. And what I'm going to be doing is, um, Lord willing, going through and, and finding old manuscripts of old books that were released right here in the States uh, during the Puritan era, uh, people, that books that people aren't even reading anymore. And... Um, Updating those, trying to get those into a sort of a modern vernacular and punctuation, and just just get them readable, get them uh, to be enjoyable at least in terms of accessibility, and get those back out again. Because people, you know, when I I released the first one, Christ the Fountain of Life by John Cotton, and when I looked through it, there's no modern reprint. I mean, the book hasn't been released in th- over 350 years, you know, and the the copies that we have save some work. I'll talk about in a little bit, but. For the most part, all the copies we have are just facsimile reprints of the original editions, which are very hard to read. So um, it just seemed like there was a need for it. We all love reading Owen and, you know, uh, John Bunyan and all these other guys. We love reading them, but we don't oftentimes read the the guys that were in the States. And um, I've I've received some blowback for even attempting uh, to release American Puritans. I had one gentleman tell me there's no such thing. So uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm kind of fighting an uphill battle in that regard. But they are real, and uh, we got one, hopefully, of many to come out. So we'll see. Yeah, well, I um, I picked it up, and, and it, it got shipped out to me, and it's just really good work. Um, I'm sure we'll get into kind of the theology of the book a little bit um, later, but um, if you haven't uh, seen it, you can pick it up on Amazon. Do you have a preferred vendor that you use to, to send people to, or is Amazon good? Well, I mean, it's, you know, we are self-publishing, so it is through the through our own imprint. But, I mean, in the end, Amazon's just the easiest. Um, okay. You know, they don't they don't pay you as well. They really hit you on fees. But right. it's the most, e- it's the easiest venue. It's the best way to get everything. So I just send people there. That's fine. You know, it's, uh, uh, I want it just to be accessible to people easily. So, yeah, go to Amazon, Christ the Fountain of Life. Uh, it's uh, it, you can't miss it. So yeah, and we'll drop a link in the show notes if if people are having trouble finding it. You know, the person that I was um, having lunch with yesterday, actually, I mentioned this book to you, and he told me he was looking for it online, and he found an uh, a piano album of yours. We're not going to talk about that. We're not going to talk about that. Oh, this is fantastic. <laughs> I, I haven't listened to any of the music, but there's actually a, an album that you had recorded uh, that is in 2001 uh, on Amazon as well. In 2001, that was the old Nate. That was when Nate was a Nate. (laughs) You you are a renaissance Nate. I do have a past life. I, uh, before coming to Christ, I wanted to be a rock star. I was a Billy Joel fanatic and I wrote a bunch of music and recorded an album in 2001 and put it out. And funny enough, like it didn't sell at all. I mean, it just like most starving artists, it just did not sell. And, um, eventually the Lord kind of moved that away from me, but as soon as that happened and I kind of got out of music, digital distribution took off. And so now this thing just lives on the internet forever and I, <laughs> I cannot get rid of it. I contacted Amazon. I said, can you please do me a personal favor and get rid of this garbage? And, uh, oh yeah, yeah, we got it. It's like, you can still find it. It's still there. Yeah, so it's not there. 
Um, I, I'm, I think I'm a huge hit in Germany. I'm like the David Hasselhoff of underrated you know, piano artists or something. I actually, I got one fan letter one time from a girl in Germany telling me she liked my music. I'm like, hey, I've made it. Germany That's likes pretty me. awesome. Yeah, it was oh, If it makes you feel any better, I tried and tried and tried and could not find a place that I could actually listen to it without purchasing the album. Excellent. Good. Maybe so be I'm sure that it's out there, but I, I wasn't looking through the German part of the internet, so maybe I have to look there. But <laughs> don't look in the German don't internet. Don't look in the German, That's part. Just <laughs> the German <thing>. internet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I mean, it, you know, there's no, there's no, you know, terrible language on it. It's not explicit. It's just, it's just not me. You know, it's not, not who I am anymore. And but that's, sure. it's there. It's going to be there, and it's fine. So. Yeah, it's amazing how God uses. Um, things that we wouldn't expect to to gently and sometimes not so gently but to gently direct us towards the the place he wants us to go That's so right. you know sometimes it's it's our plans don't work out the way we hope or the way we want them to and so we're forced a different direction but mm. we realize looking back that that was the right direction all along that's right that's right there's yeah. there's probably a savvy love sure. song that i'm thinking of that could probably land in that what's that song i probably God bless maybe you could just write road. us one real quick Nate, what's that? What? Maybe you could just write us one real quick. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, the whole album is sappy love songs, so you know, whatever, it might be there. <laughs> That's funny. So, what was it about, or how did the Lord kind of lead you into this particular project? What was kind of the run-up to this idea conceptually, and then what the kind American of spurred Puritans? the actual action into it? The Puritan project. Yes. So. Yeah, this is a, a long. This is what a two-hour podcast. So I, I have like an hour and forty minutes. Four or five hours. Story. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so um, I was doing when I wrote Reviving New England. Um, by the end of it, I just didn't feel like I had said enough, and so there was just more. I, I was researching like crazy and just stumbling into just a, an immense amount of information and history, and just how God has, has used this area historically in a mighty way. And um, so I was just. I started to research more and say, you know, I'm going to write a sequel to this book. So I'm actually uh, sort of tentatively writing a sequel to Reviving New England. It's going to be more of a historical approach to what God has actually done on this uh, property here. But um, as I was researching, I stumbled into John Cotton, and uh, it was actually a book. I don't know if you got, you probably have read the book. Uh, it's a, a book called The Devoted Life. It's an introduction to the Puritans. And uh, what it is, it's el- edited by Kelly Capick and I uh, can't remember the second person's name, but um, Puritan guy, uh, scholar. And so it's a series of chapters, and each chapter um, sort of does like a, almost like a book review of any of these Puritans' greatest works. And so, you know, Owen is there, and Bunyan's P- Pilgrim's Progress is there, and they, they cover all these books. Well, in, in those chapters, they had two American guys. They had... Um, uh, Thomas Hooker, or Thomas Shepard, I can't remember if it was Shepard or Hooker, and they had um, John Cotton, Christ the Fountain of Life, and it was uh, written by uh, Charles Hambrick Stowe, who is a, uh, a Puritan scholar as well, and so I'm, I'm reading this chapter, and I'm, I'm falling in love with this this idea that we have these guys here, and so for research, I went online, and I'm, I'm looking everywhere to find this book, Christ the Fountain of Life, and I'm looking and looking and looking, I cannot find it, not even like, it's just nowhere, so um, I actually went on to Amazon. I found a reprint copy. I'm like, oh, great. So I ordered that. That comes in the mail. It's atrocious. It's like it's like a five-year-old took the manuscript, copied it on a copier, and then, like, scanned that, and, you know, their dog mailed it to me or something. That's just terrible. It's so bad. And I'm like, I, how can I even be devotional with this material? I can't even read it. 
Um, and I, I did eventually stumble onto uh, a scholar in England who runs a ministry called Quinta Press, and he's actually painstakingly gone through every single one of John Cotton's works and reprinted them and retranscribed them. Um, again, the work the work is brilliant, but it, it does lend itself. It's it's an older work, so you're, he's going back to the these and the thous. Um, so it's just not as easy for modern readers, and so I really wanted to to put out sort of a more uh, reader friendly for kind of the common. Uh, the common reader to to be introduced to the work again. I modernized the language. I modernized the grammar. I put in chapter headings. I just really sort of did a ton of work to just get it more kind of like today's works. Um, so it was really just born out of necessity. I wanted this book so bad, and it's like, well, if I can't have this book, then let's just let's just make it. Let's just do it. So I love that. Um, I, I I did that. I, I I did all this work. I spent six months modernizing a book just so I could have a copy of it. And uh, <laughs> so I put it out there, and and now I'm excited. I'm working with a friend named John Manning, and he's going to help me do some of this work as well. And and we're just gonna, you know, if the Lord blesses it, we're going to continue to find old. Uh, Puritans from they were in America, and we're just going to keep on releasing their stuff until people get sick of it. And uh, there's there's just so much stuff. I mean, Thomas Hooker has some amazing work. Thomas Shepard, John Davenport. I mean, these are founders in this country. Uh, even some of the earlier works by Cotton Mather uh, are are good. You know, I mean, he gets a bad rap for some of the later stuff because he did some pretty weird things. But the stuff that was written at the very beginning when they came over uh, and landed here was was genuine it was it was good stuff it was the same quality as what was being released in london so uh it's just a huge swath of our culture that we just don't have anymore that i would really like to see get back a little bit i'm not romanticizing the past it's just uh this is what they were preaching i mean this this was this book is uh it's an exposition of uh first john 5 12 and it's these are sermons that would have been preached in the states this is what was here in boston so um Anyway, I could go on and on, but I just I'm excited about the book. I'm excited about the project, and uh, I'm just happy that it's it's available uh, to be to be read. So yeah, that's where yeah. I'm at so with that. so why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, reviving New England and kind of um, maybe not so much the history of that project, but just kind of like the main line of thought in the book and sort of the the onus for why that kind of book is important for our country. Because I, I think you know the three of us are New England guys. I'm I'm kind of a transplant, but YouTube. Um, grew up in New England. And so, you know, it might make sense to look at it and say, well, yeah, this is important for New England. But, you know, as I read your book and just in talking to you, I, I agree with you that this is really something that's important, not just for New England, but for the whole country and for the whole world. So can you just tell us a little bit about why that is kind of how that developed? That was a great endorsement, man. That was fantastic. Thank you. <laughs> the, the, I, check will, uh, the check can be made out to me. Don't worry. No, no, I just, <laughs> well, I, I, I'll send you some money. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> No, I mean I, I agree with you. It's um, you know New England is is special. You know there's just there's something about this land. When I was uh, looking to pitch the book originally, I was talking to a publicist who uh, was working for a, a major publisher, and I I, I was just talking. To him. I said, is, "Is this a viable book?" And he said, "You know, if this was a book called Reviving Colorado, he goes, I probably wouldn't care about it as a reader." He said, "But because it's reviving New England, there's something about New England." Um, it's the roots of our American history. There's so much here. I mean, we still read Edwards. We still read about Whitfield. We read about the Great Awakenings. I mean, there's just something that draws us to the corner, the northeast corner of the country. Um, Boston has such rich history. Um, and so there's just something about it. But when the, the real rub to the whole thing is when you look at just the, 
the volume of output, not just writing and preaching, but even just in terms of ministry. We were sending out missionaries to the whole world. Uh, I mean, we were really, I love that you used the word onus because that's a fantastic word that nobody uses anymore. <laughs> but, uh, you know, we were <laughs> the onus of ministry. Um, <laughs> we were, but we were the center. We were the, we were the touchstone. I mean, we were sending out worldwide missionaries uh, from these shores. And when you look at just how much God used New England in a mighty way, and then you turn around and you look at the state of New England now spiritually, the, the, the chasm is so vast. It's not even like, oh, we're down a little bit. It's just, it's a barren spiritual wasteland. And it's just so sad that you drive around and you look at all these old church buildings. I mean, I, we worship in a building that's 200 years old. And, you know, there's, there's states that aren't even 200 years old, you know. So there, you know, all these buildings were filled with, with, with Bible preaching and gospel preaching. And ministers and, and missionaries were sent out from these churches and now they're just empty and yeah. nobody's here and we people deny the faith and you know denominations are just they, they're run rampant i mean we have liberalism and unitarianism and universalism it's just it's just a mess i mean a bible church bible churches are so rare so the chasm was just what was most depressing and the, the whole idea behind reviving new england was just you know what what if god were to use this area, not just the territory, but what if God used the church up here again? You know, what if we would just return again, not to, not to, you know, the old ways, I'm not going for, you know, retro anything, but what if we just, you know, capitalized on the faithfulness of the first believers here, and what if we just obeyed the Lord in the way that he wants us to, and just to be faithful to him, and repent of sin, and preach the gospel, and very simple things, what if we did that? And, you know, God might just use this region again, and he might redeem some of what's been lost. And so that's that's the hope. I think that's the hope of every person who lives in every town. They want things to happen. And um, I just, uh, there's just, I'm a son of New England, and I just want to, it, it makes me uh, just mourn that, uh, that so much has gone down, and we've lost. I mean, he has all but removed the lampstand. And so... You know, I might die trying, and that's okay, but um, I just think the faithful up here should just do the work in ministry and really um, try to contend for the faith again, because uh, that, that's what our forefathers used to do. So uh, that's the heart behind it, just to be faithful and um, and see if God will bless the, the work, you know. Yeah. One of the many things I appreciate about the book is that it touches, like you said, in that strong pedigree, spiritual pedigree in New England. And it's a clarion cry. You're, you're very forthright. It's very well written. I hope it draws like a real large or it should draw a real broad readership because what's happening in New England, I think, is a great example of what's happening kind of, as you already alluded to, like microcosmically in all kinds of churches across the country. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot there to identify with. It's this kind of cry back to hearkening back to where we were before. But all of the same struggles I'm, you know, I'm seeing in, in the places where I live now. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I think what's unique about the book is you're, you're addressing that, but you're also giving some really specific, practical, devotional, pastoral pieces to really process this issue. And that's why I think this really hits, for me, it really resonated. And one of the things I liked in particular that I wanted to ask you about, as soon as I read this part, because I was like, this is killer. Like, this is spot on. It was, you, you talk about, there's a whole section about the importance of repentance. Mm. And you take it, I think, kind of out of just pure classical definition. 
into how we need to approach repentance and how big that is and perhaps bringing New England back and how important it was into kind of the original spiritual pedigree. So I was wondering if you could talk about that a little bit because oftentimes when I hear speak, people speak about repentance and revival, like those dual R's, the revival is like the thing that happens to the church outside of the church, as if like the community catches up to us all of a sudden. Mm-hmm. And therefore, there's some kind of new awakening because finally everybody realizes that God is good and he's, he's doing his thing. Uh, but you kind of flip that on its head and uh, kind of approach it the other way around. And I love that. So I was wondering if you could, that's a long setup, but if you could, you know, <laughs> yeah. Un- yeah. unpack that because that was really great for me. Well, I, I'm going to give credit to where credit is due. I stole all of the gusto of that from Louis Burkhoff. So, uh, you know, even just d- defining repentance and just the whole concept of being in a mental and volitional and, you know, emotional thing. I mean, uh, I really tried to, I mean, there's 155 footnotes in this tiny little book. I mean, I really wanted to make sure that I'm not reinventing the wheel here. Like that's that's one thing is for sure is that this is, I wanted to just recapture what biblical faithfulness really is, how the church has always understood the Bible to say about these things. So, um, so I, I I appreciate your your kudos, but uh, definitely it's this should not should not be a new thing for us. Uh, and the church, I mean, judgment begins at the house of God. So we're we are called to examine ourselves. We're called to look inward and say, you know. There, there are so many people that are praying for revival and, you know, they'll go to the state house and they'll, they'll march and they'll pray and say, Lord, bless the nation. But then right. they're going to go home and there's, is there repentance? Are you doing the work? Forget as the unsaved neighbor that you have down the street, you know, forget if, if he's getting saved, you know, you're calling for his, his repentance, but are you repentant? You know, are you living a life that is godly? Are you obeying the Lord? And by and large, I, I, I shudder to think about how much unconfessed sin is riding on the shoulders of people. And, you know, if we would just commit ourselves to that, um, I I, I structured the book in a very specific way that you can actually follow it, uh, where I begin with preaching. It starts in the pulpit. It goes out to repentance, which is to the hearts of the people. Uh, Then it goes to, um, I'm losing track of my own book here. Uh, then I talk about community, which is which is inside of the congregation. Then I start talking about mission and revitalization, which is outside the church. So it starts in the pulpit, it goes into the pews, into the hearts of the people, into the into the church body itself, and then then into the community. So it has to begin with heart work. And every single place in Scripture, God is always calling people back to repentance, metanoia, the changing of mind for the purpose of changing direction, coming to the end of yourself. Prodigal son comes to the end of himself, realizes where he's been, and then comes home. So a revival is going to happen spiritually. We can't call for it. It's not some tangible thing. We can just drum it up. The Puritans understood that revival was a surprising work of God. When the Spirit of God was being poured out, when people were, were, were confessing their sins and desiring to obey God, that's when he would work. He's not going to bless disobedience, you know, and... I mean, as far as I'm concerned, if if we don't bear the fruits that are worthy of repentance, he can and will and should remove the lampstand. Um, but it's, again, it's by his prerogative. I mean, he's the one who does it. So I just, you know, there, there, I didn't feel right, you know, proceeding and asking and, and calling for the church to do all this stuff if we didn't have the right heart. And so um, I think the, re- the repentance chapter was, was the hardest chapter to write. Uh, but in the end, it was probably the most cathartic because it was it was a chance for me to spend about a month or so examining myself as I studied and wrote it. So, um, yeah, incredibly important. We I, I can't overemphasize the need for godly repentance uh, in the life of any believer. You know. Yeah, and I, got, 
I think um, one of the things that has really impressed me living in New England isn't so much that it's a hostile place for Christians. It's that we're just irrelevant up here. Um, It's gone past the point where like people are actively trying to persecute Christians and we're just not even, we're not even a thing to them. And, And what I've found in my own life, as far as how I interact with my coworkers and people that I engage in the community is it's not so much that I'm going to go out and convince them with, with compelling arguments to follow Christ, but where, where my coworkers, where I can see, I don't know if I want to call it progress, but where I can see impact is when we have conversations about our family and, or I'll tell them something that, you know, I had to ask my wife for forgiveness or, you know, we've got this dog and I get up in the middle of the night when she has to go out and we joke about it. But at the end of the day, I do that because not because I love the dog. I do love the dog, but I do that because I love my wife and I'm willing to do that because she needs her sleep. And I, I need my sleep too, but, um, but I'm going to sacrifice for her. And I remember the look on one of my coworkers face that was just stunned when I told her, yeah, I mean, my role as a husband is to, to give up what I want in order to serve my wife. And that really had impact. And so, so much of, you know, there's that kind of corny trope of like, well, you're just going to live such a different life that people are going to, they're going to notice it. Well, no, you have to preach the gospel. You can't just, right. you know, the, the whole quote attributed to St. Francis of Assisi, the whole preach the gospel, use words if necessary. First, he didn't say that. And second, that's, that's right. stupid. Thank but you. <laughs> um, the sure. fact is that like, it's not our changed lives are impacting. And so you're absolutely right that we have to get our own house in order. And that's when I read the Puritans, repentance is so much more of an active reality than it is for how I hear repentance talked about now. I just got done um, during Lent, whether, you know, however you feel about Lent. Um, I got, I read mortification of sin over Lent and I've read it before, but I read it when I was in seminary. And so like you're reading like, 40, you know, 40 pages a night and you, you don't really absorb much. And I took it at a really slow pace and it was just stunning to me how much work the Puritans saw putting into repentance. And they knew, I mean, I suppose we shouldn't say all of them because some of them do end up kind of crossing a line into a sort of legalism, but at their best, they understood that repentance was a work that had to be done not to earn your salvation, but because salvation was being given to you through it. It wasn't that you were earning merit. It was that this repentance is the instrument that God desires to use. And I think, I think you're absolutely right that if the church really grasped onto that and that's, you know, reading, I'm, I'm only, I think I finished the first sermon in the John Cotton book and I'm a little bit into the second one. It's a little bit slower going for, for me because of my schedule. But, um, you know, he's talking about how we have Christ through worship, but worship isn't just singing, you know, singing happy, clappy songs. Worship for him is a lifestyle. It's a, it's a whole life of worship of devotion and and submission to God. It's a whole life of being unified with Christ by the spirit and, and devoting yourself entirely to God. And the second chapter is, is about purchase. And I, I, Reading the chapter heading, I went a totally different way than I expected it to, because I was thinking it was about Christ purchases us. You know, it's all about us. And he goes into this thing about like, well, no, sometimes you're going to have to spend some money in order to be faithful to God. And that really surprised me, not only how practical it was, just the practicality of like being a Christian can be expensive. Like there's things that you have to do. There's sacrifices you're going to make to serve Christ in the church that you wouldn't otherwise. Um and so there's this active repentance that is so prominent in the Puritans that, and, and I, I don't have a lot of experience reading American Puritans, 
but it strikes me just from reading cotton it seems like it's more active it's more of a of a um of a hallmark of the american puritans to have this sort of act of repentance and i don't know if that's because life on the frontier was just harder and so they they had sort of this um existential difference than the english puritans who most of them lived you know in london and and they were facing persecution but in terms of whether or not i can get food for my family it wasn't as much of a deal but there's there's a harder edge to the american puritans in my reading that i think really could benefit um especially like sort of this american sense of rugged individuality that Mm. is such a double-edged sword but it seems like these guys these american puritans where they really made the best of that and saying like well, no you need you need to repent you need to do the work of repentance and it's hard work it's not easy to do yeah and it's interesting because you know some of the resistance that i've gotten has come through um you know theological differences and and certainly noting that i mean they really believe that when they were coming over that they were they were setting up the new jerusalem i mean that's what they thought you know i mean you read uh, Ian Murray's book, Puritan Hope. I mean, that it goes right in line with, with how the Puritans were viewing a lot of these events. I mean, even the whole Oliver Cromwell. I mean, they thought they were reclaiming uh, kingdom work, you know. And um, But over here, I mean, they, they believed this was the New Jerusalem. They believed that the ministry that they were doing was in a, that Christ was going to return. I mean, how could he not when everybody you know and love was either being persecuted or ke- killed or... I mean, you get into times like that, it's easy to think that, you know, I mean, Edwards, when he was watching the whole, the whole nation turn to Christ, he's thinking, this must be the end, you know, so of course he's going to have those beliefs, but, you know, the thing about them is that when they came over, John Cotton actually preached the farewell sermon um, on the day that uh, John Winthrop and seven ships worth of passengers were going to come over and uh, basically uh, populate um, the uh, the Massachusetts Bay Colony. So Plymouth was already established for about nine years, but then when the, when the bulk of the Great Migration comes over, Cotton is the one who delivers the sermon to send them off, and they they left with a very real sense of this is do or die. You know, if if we disobey God, um, he's gonna he's gonna kill us. I mean, that was kind of their thinking. I mean, they were like, we have a chance. We're watching the church in England just, you know, apostatize. We're watching just persecution. We're watching, you know, I mean, just all these uh, clergy and bishops, you know, say one thing with their with their lips and deny God and every other aspect of their life. And so there was a very real sense of we have to get this right. We have to establish pure, true churches. We have to preach the Bible. Even the Puritan, um, the congregations, they wouldn't settle for just lackadaisical preaching. They they weren't going to allow it. They wanted ministers right. who were going to preach the word to them. So it was just a very serious thing. And by the time it, it blows up in their face, you know, 50 years later, you know, I mean, then you get to burning witches and it, it does get a little bit crazy. But <laughs> the truth is, if you read English history, uh, American history, religious history is tame. Uh, I mean, they quote, only burned 20 witches where over in England, they're b- burning thousands of them. But yeah. Again, I'm not going to excuse the behavior because I don't believe it was correct. But, but the bottom line is that there was a sense of do or die, and we must honor God. We have to honor God, and so repentance it was—it's a serious thing. And they took their faith very seriously. And so, whatever errors they committed, and I'm sure they committed quite a bit, and I think we need to learn from them and try to just look at you know in the ways that they follow Christ, follow them in that way. Um, but you know, one of the best books on repentance I've ever read is The Doctrine of Repentance by Thomas Watson. I mean, just 
I mean, I read I read stuff from modern scholars, and I'm like, man, Watson's just got it. I mean, this is an amazing book. So anybody listening, if you want a good book on repentance, check out The Doctrine of Repentance. Uh, Banner of Truth has it. It's cheap. So <laughs> pick it up and learn how to repent, you know? So, uh, but yeah, they're, they're, you're right, though. There is a seriousness. They took it. It was important to them. I mean, I, I what I would give for... You know, uh, people in, in this day and age to to take their faith as seriously as some of, as some of those people did. You know, it's Amen. just uh, yeah, yeah. And there's yeah. that do or die attitude um, in their their rest of their life spilled over into their preaching too. So I took a course on English Puritanism in um, seminary, and I also took a, a course on Jonathan Edwards. And it's funny that you mentioned you got some pushback on the theological stuff with the American Puritans because I asked, yeah. why don't we have an American Puritan course? And you know, the, the more reasonable answer was, well, we don't have a lot of their documents. So it's really right. good work that you're doing to, I'm working to kind on of bring it. I'm this stuff. <laughs> right. There's, there's a market for it. Um, there's out. a lot of people that would love to read it. But the other answer I got was, well, they get a little bit weird in the Massachusetts Bay Colony. And I'm like, that was like 150, 200 years later. Um, but but the the point that really struck me so much was that the Puritan church, even the architecture of the church, you had to usually walk in through the graveyard. And the preacher would stand looking out the front door and would be looking into the graveyard. And that was intentional in most cases because death was such a more present reality for the Puritans um, than it is for us. You know, we talk about uh, end of life celebrations and people don't die, they pass on. And we've, we've basically taken the word death out of our culture. But death was an everyday problem they were facing every day if you woke up you were one of the lucky ones because most people had someone they were losing and so you know you think about like jonathan edwards which you you know we can quibble about whether or not jonathan edwards was a puritan or not all that stuff but you think about jonathan edwards preaching a sermon about how at any moment your foot can slip and you could plummet into hell like a spider into the flames right we look at that we're like man that's a little bit extreme but for the Puritans, that was reality. If That's you were not sermon. saved, right, right? If you were not saved, that literally could be you could uh, stub your foot on a rock, get an infection, and die a week later. And that's right. not even an exaggeration. Like, that's a real real thing. Carl Truman always says, you know, he's a historian. He gets asked, what's your favorite era in history? What era in history would you love to live in? And he says, I don't know. This one that has antibiotics and flush toilets is pretty good. And the point is like, we don't realize the small things that are going on in our life that the fact that we understand what germs are is like an amazing technological Mm -hmm. advancement. So, you know, if, if, if you're listening to this and you haven't spent any time reading the Puritans, um, you know, pick up this book, pick up the, the book by John Cotton that, that Nate edited, um, go online. You can get a lot of it for free. Um, you're not going to get great translations for free, but you can get a lot of it for free on CCEL. Um, and, or banner of truth has stuff, you know, dirt cheap books. You can get 10, $15 for a, a book. And the beauty of it is because it's kind of a quirk of the time because of the, the difficulty of publishing, a lot of these works are short and digestible. They had to make mm-hmm. every word count, both because it was expensive to write, but also because people had to be willing to pay for it. And so they wrote short, concise, and powerful. I mean, a, a Puritan title is practically a sermon in itself most of the time. <laughs> but you can sit down and read something like Mortification of Sin you could probably read that in like a five or six hour stretch if you really wanted to get through it. Um, you know, um, 
William Perkins art of prophesying is I'm, I feel like every pastor in America should be given that if your pastor doesn't have a copy of that, give it to him. Cause it's, it's a handbook for preaching. It's a handbook for someone who, who needs to understand how to exposit the word of God and the principles that he lays out. They're no less applicable than they are today. And that's a point he actually makes in there that why would we reinvent the wheel when people before us have come up with all the answers to these heresies and things. So I just can't emphasize enough how important it is for us, not just for us as reformed folk. I think it's, Especially as reform folk, we need to understand our history. We need to mm. understand where we come from. We need to understand why there's such a drive for the gospel in our culture, in our our um, in our theology, and that comes largely from the Puritans. But just in general, if you're a Christian, I don't know how you could not profit from reading these guys who who mm. lived and breathed Scripture in a way that we, you know, to our shame, we can't even really imagine. Yeah. For sure. One, one thing I'd like to plug too, we're talking about where to get some of this stuff, and uh, if you and I'll, we can probably put a link to it. But if you go to Quinta Press, Quinta Press, um, this scholar Digby James has gone through. He has transcribed every single work of John Cotton. I mean, even down to you know letters and correspondence and everything. And he's all he's retyped it all. Um, it it is conforming to the original English. So some of it you're going to have to spend some time, but it, it's very readable. He's done a wonderful job. Uh, I would love to see uh, the works of John Cotton find its way into print. I mean, it's probably 10 volumes, but I'd love to see it happen. But um, So you can get the material there as well. That's where I looked and, you know, have profited greatly from that. So, you know, it is out there, uh, but, you know, my task is just to try to make it a little bit simpler and just try to get some of these gems. Uh, I'm not going to get them all out there, but, you know, if I can get a, a handful uh, and just try to bless the church in some way and just say this is where we came from, you know. Yeah, absolutely. I'm grateful for that work because this stuff is a great blessing. At least for me, this is among some of the greatest preaching ever. And like we were saying, the Puritans are serious, but they're also loving. So I've never seen such a coalescence between rich, hard, and thoroughly fought through uh, scriptural expository preaching at the same time where there's all this practical application. So most of the time, our churches now are one or the other. Either it's all seeker-sensitive or people sense like, well, I don't really want to do the hard work of theology or it bores me or it's not important. So there's something horrible has happened where we've said they're both not equally important or one is more important than the other. And the Puritans just do this great job. I mean, there, there's a testimony in the fact that you can pick up, you know, like John Cotton and be thoroughly moved from the words on the page. I mean, j- just what a, a benefit and a blessing that God is still using that work yeah, that's right. because it gives him glory in a really profound way to still impact people in a totally different medium. So I think that you're doing a, a great work there. And, and I want to kind of hear what you think about how, how that stuff is going to come to play, what your vision for is, especially in New Hampshire, because people that, I mean, you guys understand this, but you, you lived in New Hampshire. And when I try to explain to people what New Hampshire is like, I usually start with saying it's something like a foreign country, because yeah. <laughs> to me, it's, it's, like, it's like the frontier of post-truth. Like before post-truth was cool, New, New Hampshire came up with the, the motto, like, live free or die. Like, we don't care. We're going to do what we want. <laughs> That's right. We, we don't care about what anybody else says. Everything is relative in a sense. And I, I don't know. I just think it's a really unique culture. And I think that that plays into, like, this, this spiritual component. And I think it sounds like the Puritans are almost the exact opposite of that kind of mantra. So I, I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, I think, um, so you, your, your original question, you had like three questions wrapped into one, so I'm going to try to sort of that, translate. That's just how I do I got to get them in uh, that's good, while man. Tony's not talking. I know, right? <laughs> while he's taking a breath, you know. No, um, so my, my big plan for this, I mean, short answer is I don't really have a big plan. I'm just doing, 
what I think is, like I said, I mean, I, I was desperate looking for this book. I really wanted it. I'm thinking if I'm wanting this and I'm reading it, I, I fell in love with the book in the first chapter. At the end of chapter one, the sermon one, he talks about worshiping God by suffering his will. And I, when I read that, I was in tears. I actually printed it off for my wife and said, you have to read this. And she was moved and she printed it off for one of her girlfriends and said, you have to read this. And, you know, it's, um, he, he just talks about, you know, bearing under suffering in such a way that is honoring to God. And so my, my big game plan with this, and it all kind of goes into the sense of where I, I love New England so much. I love the church dearly. I love the Word of God. I love Christ. I, I just want Him to be glorified. And so putting these works out, I sent one to a, a preacher friend of mine, and in the note I just said, this is my half-hearted attempt here of trying to stir the affections for Christ again. If, if New Englanders can just read a little bit of this and say, okay, this is what was in your pulpits. This is what people used to say and preach. These are sermons from your spiritual ancestors right here. These are Puritans. These are guys that came over. Um, it was said that uh, John Owen was Presbyterian in his polity until he read John Cotton, then he became Congregationalist. So Cotton actually <laughs> was, he, he was ministering to and, and just working through uh, uh, Owen and uh, Thomas Goodwin were disciples of John Cotton. So it's like, these are, these are, these are our guys. These are our men. And um, so I would love to just see people read these, be ministered to, um, I've actually been affected by this book, and um, you know, this, we're actually the next one. What we're working on is um, um, the Poor Doubting Sinner Drawn to Christ uh, by Thomas Hooker, and the whole book is just a series of um, of, of expositions. It was a, a Thomas Hooker ministering to a widow who'd lost her spouse, and it's his exhortations and trying to to encourage her and draw her and say, "Look to Christ in your suffering." and so these are just profoundly pastoral. They're profoundly um, theological. They're they're just uh, they're gems. And so, my goal is to just try to stir the affections for Christ, and just get people thinking again about you know what true revival is, what where we've been, where we can go, what God can do. And um, I'm just going to keep on beating this drum. And uh, they're either going <laughs> to repent and believe, or they're going to kill me. <laughs> so. <laughs> Yeah, let, let me just read a, a little a little snippet from one of the sections there. This this quote um, just really stuck out to me, and I think that it's in that last section. Um, it's on page 35. It says, It was good testimony of Eli's sincerity when he heard of the woeful judgment that God would inflict upon his household. When Samuel had made an end of expressing the whole judgment, he said, It is the Lord. Let him do what seems good in his own eyes. Wherein he fitly expressed the point in hand, it is the Lord, let him do there, or let him therefore do what he will. We have the Lord for our Lord, and he is our Lord to us, when we give him leave to rule us. The Lord has given and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be his name. And, mm. you know, I, I, I was at work, so I was, you know, I had something in my eye. But I, I, would, I found myself tearing up as I was reading this too, because he turns, he turns a phrase in such a way that I would have just loved to hear him preach this. Mm. Um, but you're right, Jesse, like even on the page, this this moves you in a way that I want to say it's almost like deeper than an emotion. It's not just right. a flutter. It's not just a liver quiver. You know, it's not it's not this temporary feeling. It's like it gets deep in your soul. I read that and I, I think of Eli hearing what God is going to do to his family. And I had never, ever thought about the fact that Eli heard all that and then said, he's the Lord. He's going to do what's right. And it's so funny because um you know, Jesse, your mom says all the time that uh, God can only do what's right. 
and he can only do what's good. And, and, you know, hearing her say that there's a lot of context she says that in, but one of the contexts she says it in, I think most often is when something goes wrong, she'll use that to comfort us. And I've, I've heard her say it to pretty much everybody at some point, but she says, you know, the Lord can only do what's right. And, and that's exactly what's expressed here. So, um, you know, this is just a, yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, I wondered if there's actually another paragraph uh, that's in the same section that this is the one that got me. Cotton says, there is a glorious worship given to Christ in patience when, if so be it the will of God to call us to suffer, that we lay down our hands upon our mouths and sit down and quiet ourselves in this, that it is the will of Christ it should be do, it should do so. And being for the glory of his name and the defense of his truth and from his own hand, it endures us not. He says, we sit down quietly under the hand of Christ as knowing whose hand it is that's upon us. It is the worship of Christ, and we debase ourselves to worship him when we acknowledge that it is no matter what becomes of us so that the will of God be done. He says, this is the true worship of Christ, where you're regarding yourself as nothing before Christ because you know him and you trust him. Yeah. I mean, watching your, your I mean, Cotton lost family members and people die and he would have nothing to say, but this is the will of God. And he would worship him. When Job tore his clothes, the Bible says he worshiped. It's the first thing he did was worship God by yeah. suffering his will. Boy, we we don't know how to suffer. As no, American sure. Christians, we don't know. And we don't understand that when we do suffer, we, we complain. We take it. I mean, New England, we're, we, we're terrible. We, we just complain. And, ah, it's not my fault. You know, this guy cut me off. You know, like what? We don't even, you know, we don't even consider the fact that God is purifying us and God is sanctifying us and God is exercising his sovereign will over us and through us and it's boy to worship Christ rightly when you're when things are going good and when things are going bad uh that's a lesson we have to learn so um I, I'm I'm grateful you pulled that part out because that's exactly where I mean that that hit me I'm like I need this book <laughs> you know? yeah. amen yeah so well, we are coming up on close to an hour, so um, we should probably wrap it up. But we are very excited because Nate uh, has done the opposite of being a Nate, and he's graciously offered us <laughs> a copy of uh, Reviving New England and also of Christ the Fountain uh, to uh, give away. So we're doing our first giveaway. Isn't that exciting? Excellent. I'm excited. This, this is exciting. And basically the way this works is – you get a copy to give away that you get so then you can give it away and buy five more for one for yourself <laughs> and then four other yes. people. Yes. That's awesome. So we're going to give away two copies or one copy of each book uh, and we're going to do it two different ways. So the first way you can win a copy is to go to iTunes and leave us a review. Uh, and we will between now and when we record. So it is Sunday the 23rd. So between now and the next time we record next Sunday, uh, we will select someone who's given us a five-star review during that time. And uh, we will announce on the next episode who that is that wins a copy. And then the other is to go to Twitter and to follow our uh, Twitter, which is Reform Brohood, and use the hashtag uh, RevivingNE, is it? Nate? Yeah. So, are we, are we, which one are we giving away for which one? Because we'll give away the uh, we'll give away the John Cotton book for iTunes. Okay. And excellent. we'll give away Reviving New England for Twitter. So, what was yeah, that so, hashtag you used for yep, Reviving it's New reviving England? Reviving N E. So hashtag Reviving N E. That's the hashtag that I've been using. So go for that one. 
Great. So if you want to win Reviving New England, go to Twitter and follow us uh, and then use that hashtag sometime this week to talk about something. Just toss it in there um, and we will go ahead and pick someone from that as well. So again, uh, you can win John Cotton by um, uh, going to iTunes, leaving us a five star review and you can win uh, by using the Twitter hashtag Reviving NE. Excellent. So, brothers, how have we made it this far in this conversation and nobody said the words wicked good? It seems like I just need to drop that in there. I don't know. You could say wicked awesome guy. Yeah, yeah there, there go. we go. That's what yeah. I'm talking about. You can turn that out. accent back on, man. I, I'm terrible. That's kind of a running joke on this show that I'm terrible with accents. But you can turn that on and off like a switch. Yeah, I was I was parked my I parked my car at Harvard. And I uh, looked around and I said, hey, there's donkeys. There's donkeys right there, guy. You want to go get a – let's go see a Sox game. <laughs> Wicked. Hey, hey, come here. Give me a coffee, would you? <laughs> let's that go is see awesome. a Sox yeah. game, guy. Oh, I love when Noma was playing. When Noma was playing, we'd go, Noma! Everybody would scream, Noma! It's like you uh, can't – the there's days. no R's in New England. So uh, I have – yeah, I can turn on the non-regional and I can I can – slum it out with the rest of the new englanders so yeah it's good it's a good time no that was great i actually understood you the most just right now in the 30 <laughs> seconds than at any other point during this conversation yeah can we There's go back and people. do the whole show with just just that accent yeah we uh well we'll, we'll see we might not get very many five-star reviews for your show but you we go. can do it you know yeah uh, twitter we can well, go on twitter yeah twi- twitter needs some reviving so i yeah, think that's right i think that's a good idea um, I was so one of the last things I wanted to ask you, Nate, is for people that have never been to New Hampshire, have never even thought before this conversation that one, that's a state because most people I know down in Pennsylvania, they just think New England is just this giant block. So like once, once you get past New York, yeah, they it's just all think Boston. it's all this. Yeah, exactly. It's all, it's all Boston. We so, talk like Goodwill hunting. That's what all of New England is. Yeah, that's right. Ex- exactly. That's you, I usually just start with that movie. It's very instructional for most people. <laughs> um, hey, so you like that, apples. Be, you like apples guy. <laughs> yeah, I, I, such a good movie. Such a good movie. Got I'm snacks. sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. Um, no, we could just spend the next you know, two hours quoting him Google Hunting. That would also be equally entertaining. That's great <laughs> podcasting, I think. Um, I wanted to ask you, so what's like a re- what's a good, great thing about New Hampshire or like one thing that you think people, a good reason to come hang out in New Hampshire if you've never been there before? Come see it. So one, you're a native son. So yeah. you've, got, you've got the expertise here. So here's the thing. The foliage in northern New England is fantastic. People come from all around the world. If you come in the fall and drive drive through the White Mountains, go up 93 north, go to the White Mountains, you will have your socks knocked off. It's like the Grand Canyon of New England. It's fantastic. So, um, I mean, the scenery up here is just gorgeous. Um, I mean, some of the architecture here is just amazing. So it's it's really is a beautiful. All of New England is just beautiful. Um, it, it's um, you know, it's it's not like I mean, I, I've, I've lived in landlocked states and other places, and I just always longed uh, to be back here. There's not much to do if you're a teenager, but you know, hey, uh, as an as an adult with kids, it's uh, it's gorgeous. So um, I love it. You know, and the people, I mean, they're salt of the earth people. I mean, there there are as, as much as I kind of pick on New Englanders in the book, and as much as people are kind of cold and can be very hard, there is when you kind of get through that, when you pierce that. Uh, outer shell I mean they are some of the most genuine people and uh, I have a deep love especially people in my church I just love them they're just fantastic people uh, just genuine they give you the shirt off their back you know and uh, so you know there's a lot there's a lot here um, certainly culture uh, actually MBTS so Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary 
they're, they're sending a bunch of guys over here next month to do like a week-long tour. They're doing uh, something for credit. I don't actually know what the tour, what they're going to be covering, but they're just going through and seeing all the New England sites, all these, you know, uh, all these old sites are going to be, you know, places that Whitfield was at and Edwards. And so there's just so much rich history. But, yeah, come in the fall and drive up north, and it's just amazing. So, yeah. And if you need to get your donkeys on, there's a Dunkin' Down on every corner. Every corner. Every <laughs> yes. corner. No joke. You dude. can't sneeze in New England without no. seeing a Dunkin' Donuts. You you go through the you go through the woods, you're dri- you're driving on this long, you know, kind of dark highway and you're like, Oh man, you know, there's not a bathroom for miles and hell, there's a Dunkin' Donuts right yep. there. You know, it's like you can't it's everywhere. It's unbelievable. Unbelievable. And then you're like, Oh, I probably should have stopped and then like a minute later there's another one. <laughs> That's right. That's it's just right. the way it is. Sometimes they're on corners um, across the street from each other. I have actually, and this is not a joke, I have actually, uh, when I go into grocery shop, I have to drive like 35, 40 minutes to grocery shop, which is another thing about New England that's amazing, is nothing is right next to your house. Um, I have actually stopped at the Dunkin' closest to my house to get coffee, and then by the time I get to the grocery store, I have finished my coffee and need to get another coffee and stopped at the Dunkin' next to the grocery store. <laughs> the struggle is real out here. You, you've you graduated to true New Englandhood yeah, right there. Seriously. Wicked guy. Wicked. Yeah. Yeah, that <laughs> it doesn't get any better than that. All right, so we should probably wrap up. Jesse, how could someone get a hold of us if they wanted to, I don't know, like leave a voicemail for us? That's a really good question. Here's what I know about that, that we have a voicemail box, and I cannot remember the number. <laughs> it's 607-444-BROS. Bros. 2767. So if you want to leave a voicemail for Nate, uh, I will make sure to get anything his way if you leave a message for him. Otherwise, uh, you can tweet at us, and I will forward that stuff over as well. Nate, uh, as the uh, guest and resident pastor, since you're the only pastor on the show right now, do you have any uh, kind of closing words of wisdom or anything you want to leave us with tonight? I'll just quote Cotton. Sell everything and buy Christ. There you go. Amen. doesn't get better than that. All right. Well, thanks so much for joining us, Nate. And we look forward to the uh, work that you're doing and other books that you've got coming out. And uh, we look forward to having you on the show again sometime. Thank you, guys. I really appreciate it. All right. We'll see you next week. Uh